Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We are speaking on Thursday, May 4th, 2023, and we have a state budget. The $229 billion spending plan with a lot of new policy mixed in was passed earlier this week by legislators after agreements on many issues were reached among Governor Kathy Hochul and the two Democratic supermajorities of the legislature in the State Assembly and State Senate. Joining me on this episode of the show to discuss many facets of the deal that was reached, what it means for New Yorkers, parts of the negotiations that did not lead to deals, and the political dynamics in Albany and beyond, is State Senator Gustavo Rivera, a Democrat representing District 33 in the Bronx, and the chair of the Senate Health Committee. We welcome Senator Rivera back to the program here. We last spoke with him in the summer last year after he had just won a tough primary race to all but secure his reelection. Senator Rivera is with me in just a moment to give his always candid perspective on goings on in New York politics and policy. In this new state budget, there were a lot of deals reached and some major non-deals. In the latter category, particularly the subject of housing, which we spent so much time discussing on this show, and we dedicated last episode of the program to breaking down why housing policy negotiations fell apart. I was joined by a leading advocate on the issue, Sia Weaver of Housing Justice for All. She joined me with her perspective, and we got into a whole bunch of the dynamics around housing policy negotiations in Albany. So check out that discussion if you missed it. And we've also got other recent episodes of the show focused on housing policy, including before negotiations fell apart, I had on the state housing commissioner, Ruth Ann Visnowskis, to talk about the housing program that she and Governor Hochul and others had crafted to present to the public in the legislature this year. That was the basis of a lot of negotiations. So if you want to revisit a lot of housing discussion, we have several episodes of the show on that. And of course, with other guests on other topics as well. Okay, but in this budget agreement, there are many major pieces to it. I won't go through them all now. A few highlights include massive investments in education and healthcare, always the two biggest portions of the state budget at more than $30 billion each. There was a billion dollar mental health care agenda that the governor and the legislature worked on together that includes ongoing efforts to bring back into service hundreds of hospital-based psychiatric care beds. There's new MTA funding plans, more subway service being funded, bus lane enforcement, and a pilot for free bus line in each borough. But the bigger picture, more financial stability through the deal that was reached for the MTA to plug its operating deficit, at least for a while. There is rental assistance for NYCHA tenants in this budget deal. There's an increase in the minimum wage and then tying it increase to inflation with some caveats to that. There is an expansion of the child tax credit. There's major climate and environmental and energy action. We just did a piece on this at Gotham Gazette. You can find that and read up on the decisions that were made under climate and energy and environment. From my sense of things, this is maybe the area of the budget where the biggest deals were reached in terms of sort of new far-reaching policy, uh, gas-free buildings, uh, build Public Renewables Act, a cap and invest program on carbon emissions, and more. 
The budget deal also includes allowing about a dozen new charter schools in New York City. There is new ways in which the state will crack down on illegal commercial cannabis sales and much, much more. I won't go into more details now, but there is a lot to it. And there's a lot to it statewide, but also for New York City and Mayor Adams's agenda. You can check out our coverage at GothamGazette.com for a lot more on details. As I bring on State Senator Gustavo Rivera here, just a quick reminder, if you've missed any of our recent or not so recent episodes of the show, you can find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts, or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette site and at GothamGazette.com. You can also find all of our reporting, as I mentioned, on the state budget and much more. All right. State Senator Gustavo Rivera, thanks for being here. How are you? I was I was I was you were going to say, like, thank you so much for joining us and we're going to wrap up. So I'm <laughs> sorry. I, sorry. I took a little while with my introduction. Apologies. Don't worry, my brother. Don't How worry. are you? I'm now that we have now that we have a budget, I'm better, uh, you know, because as you as I'm sure that you and your listeners uh, know, we uh, uh, the legislature doesn't get paid until we have a budget. And, uh, I, you know, although I have an understanding landlord, you know, uh, <laughs> MasterCard and uh, and uh, T-Mobile and such, not so much. So I'm glad that I was able to take care of that. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, on, a, on a serious note alongside that, I mean, I, I imagine you're half serious, half joking, but on a, on a serious note alongside that, how, how much does that play into uh, wrapping up budget negotiations when you're three, four weeks beyond the start of the fiscal year and legislators are potentially missing paychecks here or are missing paychecks? Does that impact um, the sense of urgency among legislators? H- how does that actually factor in? Because this was something uh, that Governor Cuomo insisted on and got through. I'm not exactly sure um, you know, how that was sort of allowed to happen from the legislative side of things. I know the governor wields a lot of power in budget negotiations, but um, how, how does that factor into legislators' sense of urgency when the budget's late? Well, the first thing I'll say is that the sense of urgency for us existed before April 1st. Uh, the the person who actually delayed this whole entire thing and and the 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 reason that this process was such a mess was the governor and and we certainly and the the decisions that we made to hold the line for as long as we did on so many different issues. Um, certainly, you know, people like myself who this is, this is my job, right? This is my only job. I do not, I am not, (laughs) I am not independently wealthy. I am not an attorney. I'm not a consultant. This is how I pay my bills. Certainly has an impact on, you know, I'm glad that I have a support system. My dad gave me a call and he was like, son, if you need to, I can give you a loan, et cetera. So there's things like that. Uh, But, but for us, the, the most important part was to make sure that we actually got it right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and the governor insisted on on negotiating on a host of things, some of which made sense, many of which didn't. Uh, and and also, and I'm sure that you know this already, the part of the problem here was that even though there are literally dozens of of policy and and and, um, and fiscal choices that can be made uh, that can be negotiated rather quickly, the governor didn't want to talk about any of it until the big and really contentious pieces. Were figured out. See, that was the big problem, because, for example, in the health budget, which is an enormous piece of legislation, mm. there's you know literally dozens and dozens of decisions that probably would take a ten to fifteen minute conversation and be like, okay, so we agree on X, we agree on Y, let's keep it moving, let's close this down and move on to the other issues. We couldn't have those conversations 
because the big things, uh, namely bail and housing, were holding everything else up. And that was the governor's choice. The governor sort of switched it this year, right? Last year, it was kind of like she 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 did um, her push for changes to the bail law at the end of the process. This year, she did it at the beginning. Any difference? I mean, last year, the budget was only a week late. This this year was a month late. Any difference there? You know, was the process um, worse, better this year? Uh, is there anything that needs to be rethought here in the overall process before next year? So this is, um, I don't know, a little bit more sort of functional and timely. Well, certainly the process was an absolute mess, and there was, and it was just it, it, the budget was a just a list of lost opportunities. I have always believed that that we need a that we need to equalize the way that we do that we do things in the, during the budget process. The governor has an uh, a, a very big uh, ability and an ability because of the of of prior decisions from this from the court of appeals that give the governor immense power during the budget process they have the power to just stuff things down our throats whether we want to or not which is why i'm very supportive of efforts to create budget equity and there's a couple of different bills that are floating around there and we will be hearing more about that in the in the weeks to come but but certainly you know there there's a bill for example uh, that uh, senator fernandez uh, introduced uh, Natalia Fernandez, which I believe would certainly go a long way towards addressing some of these concerns. So the the whole budget was a mess. It was not better than last year. Is worse than last year. Um, and and I am incredibly thankful that we didn't get a worse budget. And that had a lot to do with uh, with Leader Stuart Cousins and the Senate Majority holding the line, as well as the Speaker. Mm-hmm. You know, it always strikes me that almost every year, even when there was a split legislature, you know, as obviously you were in the Senate minority at times, the Democrats until a few years ago. But whether it's a split legislature, Democrats controlling both houses, super majorities in both houses of Democrats, as you have now, there's all this talk always about how the governor has so much power in the budget process. And then you mentioned uh, there's legislation to change that. But it doesn't nothing's happened. So is that really something that's a live conversation or is it something that sort of legislators like to talk about, but nobody really wants to change the budget dynamics? Well, I can tell you that uh, many of my colleagues, I, I'm, I only speak for myself, but you should ask some of my colleagues because the anger and frustration that we felt over the last month as far as this whole process means that there's some of us who are. There's some of us who have always been serious. If you hear me say something, I'm serious about it. <laughs> There's some of my colleagues who operate differently, but I believe that this process kind of put us in a situation where many folks are really reconsidering whatever position they might have on this issue. And they're thinking about how we actually equalize the process. I mean, because ultimately what the governor prioritized was a whole host of things that were serving wealthy and powerful interests, whether it was the you know good eviction being discarded, whether it was the minimum wage proposal just being watered down, whether it's uh, the call from New Yorkers to to, to, to tax billionaires and, and corporations that just went ignored. And that's even before we get into healthcare, which is my bailiwick. And I was just incredibly frustrated by so many of the things that happened there. Um, so I so I, I believe that, you know, we did the best that we could to reduce harm, so to speak, mm-hmm. with what the with the deal that we ultimately got to. Um, and we could probably not have gotten anything better. And I'm incredibly thankful above all to my leader for holding the line on so many issues. 
One of the things that your leader, uh, State Senate Majority Leader Andrew Stewart-Cousins, um, said as part of these negotiations, and again, this this maybe would have been different if the governor had a different perspective, but basically was that there was no need really to raise income taxes or to do much with tax rates because there was plenty of revenue. It's a $229 billion budget. There's billions uh, being put into reserves. This this budget is you know much larger than pre-pandemic levels. There's been a surge in revenues. There's obviously lots of federal aid that's been uh, being spent still. Um, so you know, I think to some some people might look at this and say, how can anyone talk about really needing more resources? This is a two hundred twenty nine billion dollar budget. Uh, there's plenty of money to go around. There's some people calling it an austerity budget. You know, how do do you sort of capture this idea that you would have wanted even more revenue and ability to spend more on programs? How do you sort of rationalize that for people? Well, first of all, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it an austerity budget. I I don't share the, my colleagues, some of my colleagues have that opinion. I wouldn't call it an austerity budget, but I would say that let's, let's actually, let's actually nail, uh, you know, further, you know, drill down on on me on on the thing that I care the most about. Obviously, that I that I have to deal with the most directly, and that is the health uh, health piece of the budget. Whether it's with victories or just like complete boneheaded moves by the administration. Now, it is true that there was a their historic Medicaid reimbursement rates. That is true. Uh, considering that the past administration for 13 years just basically led with austerity throughout the whole process, right? So it is it is a good thing that we managed to have the increases that we have. But when you look at safety net institutions around the state, and, I'm, and I talked about this plenty before the budget was due, when you're talking about safety net institutions around the state, these are state, these, these are hospitals, uh, federally qualified health centers, uh, et cetera, that serve a Medicaid population around the state. These places get basically have go in the red every time that somebody walks in through the door, they lose money. And that means that every couple of years they have to come to the state and say, hey, please rescue us. That is completely unsustainable. So, you know, we can. So whether we're talking about, for example, the coverage for all conversation right now, there are about 240,000 New Yorkers that are, that are undocumented. They're still getting sick and they're still going to the and they're still going to you know, get treatment and they go get treatment at the emergency room, that costs the state over $500 million right now. That's in our current state budget. How about we go and seek a federal waiver that would save us something like $400 million as well as cover these folks? Well, the governor didn't want to do that. They didn't want to seek those federal funds. So I would argue that's somewhere we should go. Can you, uh, can, can we pause on that? Cause I was going to ask you about that because that's yeah. obviously under your main focus area. Yeah. Do you, what's your sense of why? What's your sense of why the governor who, again, is a, you know, is a moderate, but does lots of liberal and progressive things and, and you know, various perspectives on, a, you know, on, on a different host of a whole host of issues. But whatever you want to characterize, you know, is, is a liberal Democrat. Not has, a liberal Democrat. Let's just stop <laughs> okay. right there, good sir. All right. Is, is, however you want to label. What was the opposition if this is a possibility, what what's your sense of or what were you told is the administration's opposition to trying to increase health care coverage for undocumented New Yorkers? I cannot tell you one issue that frustrated me more than the conversation around coverage for all. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it is deeply fiscally irresponsible to not go and seek a federal waiver. And the best that they could come up with is like, well, maybe we won't get it. I'm like, first of all, there are two states that already have them. Second, we are a state that has the most Medicaid waivers around the country. So we kind of have a little bit of experience on how to write them. So this whole notion, because the follow-up to that, Max, was, well, if we say we're going to do it and then we don't get federal government, then we're stuck paying with it. But We're stuck paying for it. Actually, we can write the waiver in such a way that it has to do uh, that that we would have paid for that if it's not paid for with federal for federal money then we don't pay for it so the only thing and this is what this is what incredibly frustrating because again 400 million dollars it seems to me that this was a decision that was based on politics and what potentially might be the perception of certain folks about who were helping out here because again 240,000 new yorkers Okay, these folks are undocumented, but they are our brothers. They are our neighbors. They are folks who work in the in 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 you know the places that we go to. They they are all around us. There's 240,000 New Yorkers, and because they are human, they will get sick. And currently, we are spending over 500 million dollars to take care of them in emergency rooms. How about we save 400 million dollars? You tell me. What other thing could possibly explain this except a cold-blooded political decision? And I am, I mean, maybe that's the type of advice you get when you hear somebody like, you know, hitting the slopes in Colorado and then coming back and saying, let me zoom in and tell you that you shouldn't do that for undocumented, for illegals, because that's probably that guy says it. And then he goes right back on the slopes. It, it was incredibly frustrating. And it's fiscally irresponsible. It is politics, not government. That, of course, a reference to the governor's now ousted uh, advisor, um, who has been the subject of a lot of news coverage recently, uh, Mr. Sullivan, uh, especially in The New York Times, breaking the news about uh, this mostly behind the scenes advisor of the governor's over uh, on and off over the last decade or so. Um, By the way, most ironically, uh, Max, guess one of the states that's actually gotten that way. Colorado. You win a gold. Um, let, let me let me come back to Medicaid. Um, Governor Cuomo made multiple efforts to sort of re- do Medicaid reforms, rein in some of the you know sort of ever es- escalating Medicaid costs. There are people even you know who are more on the sort of uh, Democratic side of the aisle who are very supportive of expanding health care and and making sure as many people as are eligible or covered for Medicaid, expanding uh, uh, coverage, but who are also very concerned about the increasing costs and the massive cost of healthcare and how that's impacting the state's fiscal picture. Are there any conversations around that happening? Because it seems like the only conversations really that have been happening over the last couple of years are just how do we add more state funding to Medicaid? And as you said, you know, increase reimbursement rates. And some of that is very important and necessary, clearly. But there's still an element of sort of runaway costs here, aren't there? There's we, we certainly listen, I will give uh, Cuomo a little bit of credit. I will. Uh, originally, when he came in, uh, one of the things that the original Medicaid redesign team did was to but put some reforms in place that managed to control the cost curve. But the reality is that then 
then took the rest of the time that he was in that that he was in the governor's office consistently shortchanging institutions that serve the most vulnerable. And the problem is, bro, that these are things that that over time just get worse and worse. If you have a hospital in a poor working class neighborhood that serves poor working class people and is constantly in the red, then it means that they have problem keeping staff. It means that they have they have issues with their with their infrastructure. It means that they have to consistently figure out what programs they can keep open or close because they can't afford it. So it is something that has accrued over time. So raising the minimum the the, the Medicaid rates, or for example, passing the bill that I introduced as part of the conversation, hopefully will pass, which actually would give us more federal money to invest in in in, in safety net institutions. That is is money that is that is meant to be to give to these institutions the ability to maintain themselves and to not only survive and hold on but thrive and 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 less and rely less and less on emergency money from the state government, which has to rescue them every couple of years. Mm-hmm. So the so the, the thing is that we in the state certainly have made a commitment to to serve people, and I'm and I'm very proud of that. We have a big Medicaid program because we have a lot of poor working class folks that require health care. And I'll remind everyone that the passage of the New York Health Act, which is my ultimate legislative you know, goal, mm-hmm. would actually reduce, greatly reduce the cost of care all around. Because currently, regardless, even when you're talking about Medicaid, you still have a medical system which has the market mentality at its core. It is still has a lot of profit-seeking entities inside it. And even when you're trying of your best, if you have a system that is led with that profit-making mentality, the thing is never going to cost less. So the goal here is providing a system. The Medicaid system is essential because it serves poor working class New Yorkers of all stripes all across the state, in, in rural areas and urban areas and everything in between. And we must strengthen it. And so I would argue that we need to invest more in it. And the reason we need to invest more in it, again, Max, is because investing in it will provide those institutions the stability that they require to not rely so much on emergency state funds every now and then. All right, a lot more to discuss there another time, and maybe we'll get back to the New York Health Act um, later on in the conversation, but let's let's um, talk a little bit more about what's in and not in this budget. Um, on housing largely falling out of the budget, how should people? How should New Yorkers understand that? I mean, this is basically the number one crisis facing the state. Yeah. And how is it that the governor and the legislature can negotiate for weeks and consider things for months, and basically do nothing here in the budget? That's well. That's the question you're going to have to ask the governor because ultimately, it's it's you know we first of all. The the reality is that because many of these are policy conversations that don't necessarily have a fiscal impact, we have to have a conversation that's outside of the budget. Okay, um, and we and we have not that much time now, but we still have plenty of pieces of legislation potentially to consider, and I hope that we will. Uh, but but it is but it is shameful that ultimately it was a choice by the governor to just drop the entire conversation because good cause was included. And we insisted that there is, there are, you know, the, we insisted that there are, there are conversations here. And you saw the one house, our one house budget, you saw the position of the Senate. Um, And, 
and there was and and there were certainly some folks who are resistant to it in my, even in my conference but there was a level that there was a level of consensus which is the reason why it made it to the one house that in any conversations about housing in the state we have to do what we can to take people and to keep people in their homes mm-hmm. because they have like we we can building new new units is absolutely essential and having them be truly affordable and in evenly distributed, those are all conversations that are necessary, having to be built by union labor. All these things are necessary. The fact is that even if we had resolved all of that, you can't put up a, a building with you know 50 or 100 units overnight. And while you're building that, you might have 50 or 100 people that might be losing their homes because they're not protected. This is why millions of tenants need protections now. So we because we need to keep people in their homes i remember you know my my office so i i have a, a district office that over the years i mean my district has changed a little bit since redistricting but over the years my my prior district was the number 2 num- the number 2 district statewide in number of rent stabilized units and still even though it's changed a lot and now there's more condos and more private homes we still have a hell of a lot of folks who come to my office on housing issues obviously this is a crisis that happens all over the place and i and we know that our number one priority is keeping people in their homes mm-hmm. and so that is how we need to shape the policies that we do um the policies that we do in the in in my you know in in in, in government there have to be long-term conversations about keeping people in their homes first and then building affordable units for everybody else. So what I don't have a sense of, and maybe you can help provide clarity for everybody, including me, Mm -hmm. is uh, the legislature wanted some version of a good cause eviction bill, um, you know, some new limits on conditions under which tenants can be evicted, uh, some requirements about lease renewals and potentially some caps on annual rent increases. So some you know major regulation of the housing marketplace. Mm-hmm. The governor wanted her housing plan, but seemingly felt very strongly that there needed to be the requirements, not just incentives, but requirements for growth across the state with infrastructure funding and, and other things. And something broke down around the governor's opposition to the good cause and the legislature's opposition to the requirements for growth and the mechanisms to ensure those requirements, like some overrides of local power, if growth is not happening. Where did it actually break down? Was the legislature willing at all to go with requirements and overrides? Because my sense is there was never that approach from the legislature. So the legislature was mostly saying, give us some version of good cause and we'll do uh, targets for growth with incentives, but we're not doing requirements and overrides. And the governor wasn't going to take two things that she didn't want. Well, the first thing is that I would not consider good cause a major change in housing policy particularly because New Jersey has had those protections for half a century and they do not have an eviction crisis. We do. Uh, So that's number one. And, you know, there and there certainly was a very big difference. There were big differences and big discussions within our conference. I certainly have a different opinion than some of my suburban colleagues. But the but what we were what the ultimately what the what the state, uh, what the Senate majority was proposing was to say there needs to be some incentives, um, not just not just a, a you know a, a 
not just a stick, but there needs to be a carrot. And and we were in the conversations about that carrot uh, and what that needed to be. Um, and then, you know, that then then certain things happened and the governor said, we're not doing it anymore. Now, I will tell you in this, I will speak in this, in this instance, I will speak strictly for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's obviously uh, differences within our conference on this. I have, I, I believe that history teaches us that, that many of the 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 housing requirements and the zoning requirements that are particularly in suburban areas uh, out you know they, these are these are things that are driven by deeply racist history and have had racist outcomes um and so they're they're ne- i am not uh, i do not believe i'm not opposed to the idea of using some state authority to induce certain some certain localities which might not want those people to come and live amongst them to to do so, you know, to create, you know, some level of housing to have that happen. Um, the 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 conversation in the conference, you know, got to a point where we said, let then let's create a level of, uh, you know, let's 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 use more carrot and less stick. And ultimately, the the proposal that made it to the one house, and more importantly, the conversations that happened within the negotiations were about figuring out what you know what level was what. Um, and and ultimately, you know, wherever and obviously I was not participating on the day to day conversations of that, but ultimately it fell apart when the governor said, like, well, you know what, don't worry about it. We're not going to do anything. And it's like, OK, well, that's the, the the governor has that level of authority in the in the in the budget process. If, if she says if a governor says we ain't doing that at all, then we're not doing that at all. And now we got to vote yes or no on what she puts in front of us. So here we are. You see, though, that there's a way from the other vantage point to say, well, the legislature wasn't going to come along on the requirements of for growth. So, you know, I don't, you know, as governor speaking here, hypothetically, there's no real path Ooh, forward. Governor Max. Okay. Yeah, there's, no, more governor Max. <laughs> there's no real path forward on accomplishing the housing that I want to accomplish in, especially as you just got at Senator, the exclusionary areas of the state that don't care about incentives. They don't care about, you know, offering tens of millions of dollars for infrastructure funding for building new housing. They don't really want to build new housing, um, you know, at least the powers that be there. So why should I why should I take, you know, a deal that I don't think is going to work for the housing growth targets I want to? You know, I mean, the, the, you know, the, there's there's ways to sort of look at it on both sides here. But the question is, how could there not be some deal? And you said you know, a lot of this policy doesn't have a fiscal component, but anything that's going to be tied to these infrastructure and planning incentives and funding for that type of work does have a fiscal component. So maybe maybe good cause eviction doesn't have a state fiscal component, but if that's going to be tied up in negotiations around housing growth targets and infrastructure, then then it all has a fiscal component. No. First of all, look at you, Governor Max, huh? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You're positioning yourself out there for something. I'm just... uh, no, thank you. Oh, well, but, but 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 to but to address your but to address your question, listen. I think that that's I think that that's where we need to be bold and courageous here. I mean, uh, uh, we need leadership from the second floor, and I think she got she buckled. I mean, it's like we need to. Are have you going to pass good cause eviction in the legislature in this session in this next you know six weeks here? Sure hope so. I'm gonna. I'm a. I'm a co-sponsor, and I'm a big believer in how we're gonna. We need to. We need to pass this because that we provide an immediate relief for tenants in the housing market, and and we are an eviction. We are in an eviction crisis, 
I see that again. The front lines are our district offices, and I see that every single day. So I don't understand how there could, you know, there there wasn't some agreement on some progress. For example, even if good cause eviction gets taken off the table and the required growth targets, how is there no deal on, you know, the housing access voucher program plus, you know, transit oriented development? Like some some pieces of what both sides were asking for. I, I'm, you know, I'm just again. Why? I'll tell you why. Because we don't have Governor Max. That's- <laughs> no, but 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 really, I mean, that's you know, that's the way I started discussing housing. Here is how was there no progress on this sort of top crisis facing the state? I mean, sort of hard to understand. Well, dude, it, you know, obviously, obviously I care deeply about housing, but the thing that I was paying the most attention to was health. And I felt the same level of just I was just perple- a, a mixture of just angry and perplexed at the same time. at many of the decisions that were made by the governor towards the end on that issue. So All right, I, let's come back. I, wish I could explain it to you. I wish I could explain it to you, but I can't. OK, Um On health, in your statement about the budget, one thing I wanted to ask you about that we didn't talk about earlier on the health conversation, there's a bunch of pieces here, we won't get to a lot of them, but you you were um, upset around the governor's insistence related to opioid settlement funds. Still am. Still. Yeah. So so explain to people what happened and what you wanted and what the problem is from your perspective there. There, there is no doubt that around the country and certainly in the state of New York in the last couple of years, there has been a crisis of deaths from overdoses from from opioid use. And uh, some of it was driven uh, by drug manufacturers pushing on you know people unwittingly into using a product for pain and discomfort that ultimately was incredibly addictive. And so this has been established, right? And so there's a series of lawsuits that have been brought against some of these pharmaceutical companies that have literally profited off of the death of so many people. And a few years ago, working along with the attorney general, my my office and me and, and, and the attorney general's office come up with a bill uh, to create an opioid settlement fund the reason the the reason for that fund was that so any dollar that comes into the the, the state from one of these settlements, whether it's you know ten thousand dollars or a billion dollars or anything in between, can only be used for harm reduction, treatment, recovery, right? And so part of it was to create a board to provide recommendations to the administration and to the state so that we can use that money. Well. That was passed, that was signed, and the board has been working, and they provided a series of recommendations. And the recommendation, number one recommendation, was to have some of that money, which is, again, not taxpayer dollars, but settlement money, to go to support the two overdose prevention centers that are already operational. And very quickly, the overdose prevention center is a place where people who use drugs can do so under medical with medical supervision. And the goal here is to keep people alive because people can't recover if they're not alive. And we can have a long conversation about that. But the bottom line is that the board provided a recommendation. These are experts that have been doing this work for generations, and they are they were put together specifically for this purpose so that the administration, regardless of whether it was Kathy Hoko's or Cuomo's or anybody else's, wouldn't get to decide to do with this money something else that didn't go to repair the harm that the opioids and their and their overdose, death, overdose deaths have caused. And so... She decided not to give a dollar 
to the organization that is providing these services in the two centers that exist. And one thing, and one thing that's very important to understand here, currently, these two centers function and there's a room where the actual drug use occurs under medical supervision, but there's a whole host of other services around it, which are healthcare services, mental health, recovery, food services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, needle exchange, et cetera. All of these, all of these other things are funded by public dollars, but what happens in the room is not. There's no taxpayer dollar being used at all for what happens in that room. Well, guess what? The administration said that not only were they not going to give, we're not going to follow the recommendations of the board for what happens in that room uh, to support what happens in that room, but they didn't want to send even a dollar to those to that organization to provide any of the other services which we already give state dollars to. So I am furious at that. I'm still stuck, by the way, and maybe this is what more resources would go to, but I've been stuck on the fact that this, the city with these partners opened up these two overdose prevention centers and they weren't 24-7 operations. I don't know we're how you sort of- that. We're working yeah. on that. I mean, that, that just seems to have caused its own problems. And of course, you know, People's addictions don't uh, don't run by the you know nine to five clock. Um, so uh, a lot a lot to potentially discuss there as well. Th- this is something, by the way, that you're very clear on that you would welcome an overdose prevention center in your district, and Absolutely. this is some this is a model that you want to see expanded. Without a doubt, and I've had very tough conversations with some of my neighbors and. Who are, you know, because the thing is, dude, I'm I'm 47 years old, right? I grew up in the in the, you know, this is your brain on drugs, war against drugs, drugs are, you know, drugs are bad, addiction, you know, is bad, people are junkies or this, that, and the other. I grew up in that era. So I certainly it took me a while to get to the point where I have a better understanding of what addiction actually is and how to actually treat it. Criminalization does not work. I said this on the floor of the Senate. Criminalization does not work. We can't arrest our way out of having our neighbors, our family members die from overdoses. We have to invest in what works and harm reduction services like overdose prevention centers do. They save lives. You cannot recover if you're not alive. So let's invest in what actually keeps people alive so that they can recover. Mm-hmm. And so there was, we did community forums in the Bronx where I had very tough conversations face to face with some of the folks who were opposed. And there's some people, some people remained opposed and others kind of started to come around and, and, and kind of saying, you know what, this might be, you know, because I say to them, I don't, of course, I don't want somebody injecting drugs in front of you, of you, of your kid when you're taking him or her to school, him or her or there to school. Like, I don't want to, I don't want that. How about we create a place? where they can actually use under medical supervision so that they can be away from what happens, you know, on outside and on the street and, or on a corner or hidden in a bathroom at a McDonald's. And then we can actually there address their, address whatever issues occur so that we can actually lead them to recovery. That's what happens in these places. I would invite you to come. If you haven't, I would come, I would go with you. I would love for you to, to visit one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'd be, I'd be happy to. Uh, Dead serious, by the way. Dead serious, yeah, of course. Yeah. The reporters, it's a um, certainly. I know there's, I mean, there's also there's limitations around what people are allowed to see and and photograph and all that. But there's, I'm sure there's there's um, ways to visit and and learn and see what's going on. Um, I only have a few. I only want to take up a few more minutes of your time. So let's just touch on a couple other things. 
when it comes to a lot of these things that we're discussing, say a little bit about how, even if it's just in the Senate majority, how the sort of suburbs of the city, especially Long Island, but also a little bit um, the Hudson Valley, are influencing the decisions because those are sort of the political battleground areas. You in the state Senate majority, you lost several seats on Long Island. You made up for those elsewhere, including in the city itself, because redistricting uh, changed the dynamics of of the district boundaries and such and and sort of undid a prior Republican gerrymander in the state Senate. But um, how much is sort of uh, the existing representatives of Long Island and other suburban districts, are they over indexed in the decision making here around things like housing and other policies? Is it appropriate because these are the political battleground areas where there's a lot of sort of uh, very close margins on a lot of policy and on a lot of political matters that it makes sense? Are Governor Hochul and others sort of too focused on chasing, you know, votes in places that they didn't get them? How, how, how does how do you describe for folks the sort of power of the suburbs in these discussions and whether it's an appropriate level or not. I would say that we are better because we're a diverse conference. The, the, the reality, I mean, there's certainly a lot of things that I disagree with some of my colleagues, even in the city. I mean, there's some more moderate colleagues, you know, take somebody like Leroy Comrie, for example, Uh, recent guest here on the show. Mm -hmm. and, and, And he's Leroy, Leroy and I have been friends, you know, he, he served, I think he got elected to the Senate like two or four years after I got here, but I knew him from his time in the council when I was a staffer. And so he's always been just a kind, uh, just, you know, amazingly smart guy, but he is definitely more moderate than I am. And we've had some very deep, you know, disagreements, but that makes us better. And, you know, when you have somebody who represents rural parts of the state, listen, I made this I made this joke before. I think that, you know, I don't want to be in a field with cows because I think the cows might attack me. You see what I'm saying? Like I am I do not know how to really represent the interests of rural uh, of rural New Yorkers. But my colleagues who represent rural New Yorkers do we. and, And so we have we have like. I mean, I know that you would that you would give a couple of your a couple of organs in your body to be a fly on the wall when we have those, you know, those conversations in conference. Uh, and I can tell you that they're that sometimes they are they are contentious that I will not deny that. But we have been better because of it. And that and that means we we fight it out amongst ourselves. We have disagreements. We deeply respect each other. And we and, and our leader has been incredibly effective in getting us to a consensus. And it's rare when there's like 100 percent agreement on something. But people understand, you know, that sometimes there's things that we got to do that we got to do as a conference and that we are better off when we listen to everybody, include everybody, fight it out. And then, you know, uh, go out and, and and have the position and let the leader have, you know, take the position that we've reached in those conversations. Again, sometimes very contentious. Uh, and, and, you know, get, get us to a better place in the state. So I, you know, I, I will continue to have those battles with my colleagues in private. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but I'm, but I think that we are a better conference because of it. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was very interesting for the governor to come off a tight election, uh, you know, really struggling on Long Island, obviously, and in part, you know, facing a candidate from Long Island, but, but still struggling deeply on Long Island, um, 
and then come out with this major marquee proposal on housing that was clearly going to be very controversial in those same places, not effectively, obviously, but but trying to really pitch it as something that's actually good, <laughs> good for Long Island and good for the suburbs to grow modestly and to have places to live for people's, you know, children's and children and aging parents and all of that and and people who are working at the restaurants and other places to have places to live. Um, I'm but it sure was interesting. That, I'm sure that that came together, you know, as he was going down that deep slope, you know, with like white powder out there amongst the trees. And nah, you know, you, all you, of a sudden he's like, you know what would be good? Yeah, I'm going to do that. You Let know me. very well that the housing stuff, you know, came came from uh, uh, other other advisors of the governor and her own, you know, her own. Assessment I don't. Of- I don't know where it came from. No. <laughs> No, I don't work. I don't work for that lady. I no, work. For this is. Yeah. Well, th- I mean, these are what well, well, I don't want to keep it too long. So let's not go back into housing. But I thought it was I thought it was very interesting that she was sort of willing to take come out and now take that political risk after, you know, it, it's not that she came back into this session only trying to figure out ways to sort of, you know, recoup some of the Long Island, you know, voters she clearly lost to, you know, Zeldin, that it was a, a different approach and that, you know, there wasn't quite the same sort of level of, um, you know, courage in some ways in the legislature to sort of take on some of that stuff in the in in the suburbs, especially. I wish there was a, ra- I wish there was a radio version of a shrugged shoulder emoji. <laughs> Why? Because, because you're saying her effort to do that wasn't actually so strong or because... I just, I, dude, what I'm saying is that I don't necessarily understand this administration. It's incredibly, it's incredibly perplexing to me. There's so many things. I mean, let's, even, again, we don't have the time, but if we go back all the way to the La Salle battle a couple sure. of months ago, like that, there's, and this, and this housing proposal, there's, there, there are things you kind of, you talk to people before you put things out in the universe. And yes, you, that's important. On your, mm-hmm. your side. And so I don't, so I don't get it, but again, you know, I, I do not work for the governor, I, you know, but there's, so, so that, that those points are all very well taken. And I wish we had time to talk about the uh, Lasai nomination, but we won't get to that in this conversation. Um, those points are all well taken. And obviously they've really struggled on a lot of the political aspects and that goes back to the election. <laughs> and then that, that was then followed up on in the chief judge issue and then the housing plan and, and lots of issues related to uh, political coalitions and communication and all of that, all, all well taken on housing. The, the issue there is there's, as far as I can tell, there's no actual rational argument to say that her housing plan wouldn't only be good for the state. Like if you just took her housing plan and you just passed it, that would be better for New York than either doing nothing or, you know, passing, um, you know, some very sort of like modest attempts at, you know, housing growth. And you can argue it's got to come with tenant protections and all this stuff, but you know, in, in in some sense, what she put forward, almost nobody's made an argument that it's a bad vision for the state to increase housing supply so that, you know, there, there's more housing for people who need it and want it. Um, so as, as bad as the po- politics may have been fumbled, this is not, you know, this just doesn't seem like something where, uh, you know, on the policy, she wasn't trying to do something that's just sort of almost unequivocally would be good overall for for New York State. Yeah. 
Again, more shrugs. Shoulder emoji. All right, let's wrap up on this. Um, tell me, tell me one thing we haven't talked about that you're happy with about the budget. Something that you fought for, or you I'm were happy with? Yeah, you know, I mean, it strikes me. There's a 229 billion dollar budget. There's a whole bunch of policy compromises that were made. True. Uh, you true. talked on some of these things. I, you know, it, it, it strikes me as funny. Doula coverage. I think that having that be, you know, provide Medicaid coverage for doulas. I think it's an, that's an incredibly important uh, piece of, of dealing with the maternal health emergency that we have in the state of New York. And I think, you know, I think Samra Brook is, is a big, big piece of that. She did not stop talking about that through the whole way. So I certainly will give it to her. Um, you know, there is, uh, you know, there's the, the hundred over hundred million to support the reproductive health care providers. I think that was, Certainly uh, a good thing. The 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 free bus pilots. Uh, I definitely want one in my district. I think that there's you know that that there that that was something in the transportation field that that was good. Um, Which you know, bus so, line you want? Uh, dude, that's a tough one. But if I had to choose, I'd probably say Bronx Twelve. Okay. I said I said the BX Twelve because it's like so because that because that one goes completely all the way from City Island all the way to to Fordham Road and then Manhattan like it's it goes right across the Bronx and and the most difficult thing to do in the Bronx is go across town so it's you know that so that one is probably the one that I would stick to and it goes through the heart of my district as well so that certainly doesn't hurt but um but yeah so listen it's every every budget is a, every budget is a plus and a, and, and a minus and I, and I get that there's never been a perfect budget until we have Governor Max obviously but we never you know we haven't had uh, a perfect budget and there's but there's there's certain things that are that are more frustrating at times than others and i just thought it was missed opportunities but uh but yeah there's a couple of good things in here all right well i'm gonna let you go i have many more questions for you but you've been generous with your time as always thank you for joining me we'll catch up more down the road um is there anything else in a parting note that is on your agenda for the post budget session here it's going to be it's going to be go by quick it's going to really uh, definitely anything, anything you're pushing for that we haven't touched on. I mean, we only touched on a couple of things related to, you know, good cause eviction, some other things, but anything on your agenda, whether health or otherwise, that is a sort of post budget top priority. I certainly will be focusing a lot on, on some of the, some of the missed opportunities that we had on health uh, around safety net institutions coverage for all, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, you know, medical debt, that is a big one uh, that I have to, de- that we have to deal with. Um, so there's, you know, I'm going to see how much we can get done. And uh, okay, I, 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 I am doubtful that I'll have enough time to get to one of the, to one of the karaoke nights up there in Albany, but uh, <laughs> I hope that you can join me. I, I hear that. Uh, I hear you knock it out of the park. Uh, is it Sinatra is your favorite or what's your, uh, oh, I'm, what's I'm, your karaoke? <laughs> There's so many go-tos, but I just I was I was stuck on I was stuck on a Cab Calloway classic. I'm going down to San James Infirmary, see my baby there, stretched out in a long white table, so sweet, so cold, so fair. So just stuff like that. Like, there he oh. is, State Senator Gustavo Rivera, singing us out here. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Be well. Take care, my brother. 